You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope. And today's episode, or tonight's when you're listening to it, is entitled The Sea is Eating the Ground. A theology of sea level rise. So yes, as I try and get myself organised to do some new reading and so on, uh, I have a continuing back catalogue of things to share with you. And this comes from a paper I was commissioned to write for the Anglican Theological Review, and uh, an edition that was all about water. So in essence, uh, this paper looks at theological arguments that people present to say that sea level rise, which is a major impact of climate change and will influence or adversely impact millions, well, I guess billions of people living around the coast, particularly those in low-lying areas um, in the Pacific, for example, a bit of the focus of this paper and this episode, uh, and deal with that in a theological way, those theological arguments, particularly people who look at the account of the Noachic flood, the flood of Noah in Genesis 6 to 8, and say, well, God promised never to flood the earth again, therefore sea level rise can't happen, therefore climate change is not real. And so this is a way of dealing with the textual issues and thinking about the inner logic of the Hebrew Bible without getting distracted by issues of, well, there isn't geological evidence for a global flood anyway. Um, That's just the way it is. But thinking about what the text is trying to say. So this is a pressing issue if you live um, in the Pacific in particular. Now, the title of this uh, paper and indeed the podcast is comes from a quote from a, a 13-year-old uh, resident of the Carteret Islands. Her name is Maria. The Carteret Islands are a group of coral atolls uh, to the east of Papua New, mainland Papua New Guinea. Now, at the highest point, these islands are just uh, one and a half metres above sea level. So you can imagine that they're really vulnerable to sea level rise. Uh, and the people of the Carteret Islands uh, are set to be amongst the world's first peoples to permanently lose their homes due to climate change. And they are migrating now to mainland Papua New Guinea slowly. For over 20 years now, the Carteret Islanders have been fighting a losing battle against rising seas by building things like seawalls and planting mangroves. And, and these will do things, uh, will provide some benefit in the short term. And indeed, growing mangroves is is a great way of of storing carbon and promoting uh, fisheries for, for small fish, you know, for, for the fishing industry, etc., local fishing industry. So they're good things to do, but they won't hold back the tide. Uh, as the girl, uh, young girl says, the sea is eating the ground. So as sea level continues uh, to rise, low-lying islands like that will just disappear. And there's all sorts of um, ways of thinking about this or the physical aspects. So king tides... Uh, which are very large tides and storm surges from tropical cyclones have a greater impact as sea level rises. In 1995, for example, a storm surge 
from a, a, a large low pressure system, ate most of the shorelines of two islands and cut one in half. And one of the impacts of that was to leave back, uh, leave behind pools of brackish water in which malarial mosquitoes could breed, and that introduced malaria to the islands where it hadn't existed before. So there's all sorts of impacts that, that arise. Now, these are a resilient people, and, and a group started in 2006 uh, to take control of the, the migration themselves and to maintain a sense of dignity and not relying upon handouts and so on. But it, it's you know highly problematic. So a school teacher lamented that, quote, it's hard to let go of your home, a place we have been for generations. So it's, it's not a trivial issue. It's not like we might think in the West, oh, you, you sell a home and you buy another home and you, you move, or you move overseas for a while for work, and, and that's all hunky-dory. These are people losing their ancestral homes and being displaced and forced into a, a new situation. It's a non-trivial thing. Likewise, people in, in Tuvalu say things like, this is another coral atoll that's at risk of sea level rise, quote, moving away from Tuvalu is not good for our culture and values. We want to live in our own land, our home, and where our forefathers have lived. Tuvaluan people don't like to be called refugees. So sea level rise, which is in turn a result of climate change, which is in turn a result of uh, an energy-intensive Western lifestyle, is robbing people of their dignity. And so this is why it's a major problem. But you get these theological issues that arise. And so, for example, one Tuvaluan man put it this way, quote, Only the Creator can flood the world. I believe in God. I don't believe in scientists. So, yeah, this is, this is a real drama. And, of course, the key text is Genesis 8, verses 21 and 22. So after the flood, God says, quote, Nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done, as long as the earth endures seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And so you, we have to deal with this text. I mean, there's, there's multiple angles, and I don't think that I've entirely nailed this. I think there's more that can be said. And I, I think what I mean by that is in a more sophisticated sense than saying, oh, there was no global flood, and it's just a made-up text, and blah, 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 and that kind of dismissive thing that denies the inner logic of what's being said and doesn't treat properly the text in its context and say, well, what's it saying then and what's the scope of its validity and, and how and when can you, quote-unquote, set it aside or, or relativize it in the modern context. So I'll skip over the section in the paper that talks about sea level rise. It's something to talk about another time. But it, it's clear just quickly that sea level's been rising for some time due to human activities and that r rising is accelerating so uh, a relatively recent study showed that sea level rise has accelerated from 2.2 millimetres per year in 1993 to 3.3 millimetres per year in 2014. So this is like a, a 2018 article that I wrote. Now that might sound not sound like a lot, but remember that's per year. And so every year you add a few mils and a few more mils and a few more mils and sooner or later your island's subject, or your coastline is subject to more storm surges uh, in, increased impacts from those and erosion and so you don't have to be completely inundated for sea level rise to have a significant impact that you, you find that um, water supplies start to go brackish because on a coral atoll the water supplies 
it's rainwater and that fresh water collects on a saltwater lens and so that saltwater intrudes and you lose your fresh water supply and so on. So without going into a great deal of depth, let's just take it as read that sea level rise is a significant issue because people are already having to abandon their homes. And what you find is when you look at IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change projections, the earlier ones in the reports, of course, are conservative because they relied upon an incomplete understanding of the collapse of um, ice sheets, continental ice sheets. So the fact that water expands when it gets warm has been a major driver for some time of sea level rise. But now, as glaciers collapse into the ocean, that accelerates things. And in centuries' time, we could be up for, I don't know, that's beyond the timescale of many people's thinking, tens and tens of metres of sea level rise, but at least one metre by the end of the century. And that will have a significant impact in my own country of Australia, for example. But certainly in the Pacific, it will force many people to have to move and do what they don't want to become, or be what they don't want to become, that's become, quote-unquote, environmental refugees. And so there's lots of literature now on how people cope and mobility in the Pacific and their resilience and so on. So then people in that region aren't hapless victims without any autonomy. But the fact that they have to migrate at all in response to this is a sad indictment on the West. And so we need to deal with the theological issues because many of these people are indeed Christian. So to, to help them uh, to deal with this. And they've got their own internal resources, I know, and there's, there's a few papers in this journal article. But I want to share with you my thinking on Genesis. So this, the sticking point, again, is this quote, Nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So does this text really provide a stumbling block for Christians to accept the established science? Now, I've touched upon this in other episodes, so we need to ground this in the ancient Near Eastern context, and you find that there are other flood stories, that the Hebrew Bible is not the only uh, set of texts that has a story like this. And as Peter Enns, a Hebrew Bible scholar, and I do intend to have an episode on his writings in the near future, you don't have to capitulate to the idea that the Bible's just borrowing and stealing without reflection. And so we can just ignore the Hebrews. But we don't have to retreat from critical scholarship like fundamentalists do as well and say, oh, no, 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 these stories are not the same, they're not alike. What we need to do, as Peter Enns says, is, quote, as Christ is both God and human, so is the Bible, which is his way of saying that, okay, you can believe in divine inspiration of Scripture, but it's also very human text set in a human context, and um, that it's, an, again, quote, a necessary consequence of God incarnating himself, and it is, quote, essential to the very nature of revelation that the Bible is not unique to its environment, or it, it wouldn't speak to people around it. So uh, I've said this before, that there's similarities between Genesis 1 and the Babylonian Enuma Elish, and as N says, both authors breathe the same air of culture, um, but there's also similarities between Noah's flood and the Akkadian Atrahasis and the Babylonian Gilgamesh saga. So it helps to understand those contexts to, to read the story better. Another useful thing, and I alluded to this in other programs, is that we need to understand the ontology. So that's the philosophy, uh, philosophical study of the nature of being. So what, what, why are things? Uh, and John Walton, as I may have mentioned in a previous episode, 
well worth uh, looking up his books, maintains that the ontology of the ancient Near East, including Genesis 1 and the Flood account, is functional. And what that means is that the author was, is interested in relationships and purpose, or teleology, not material process. Walton proposes that, quote, People in the ancient world believed that something existed not by virtue of its material properties, in other words, the stuff that it's made of and how it came to be made, but by virtue of its having a function in an ordered system. A place for everything and everything in its place, you might say. So, for example, again, quote, uh, The sun does not exist by virtue of its material properties or even by its function as a burning ball of gas. Rather, it exists by virtue of the order that it has in its sphere of existence, particularly in the way that it functions for humankind and human society. So it's not uh, simply an account of nuclear, uh, thermonuclear synthesis and all those things, or radiative processes and so on, that I learned about it in my undergraduate degree, but about what role the sun plays, and indeed as a theological statement too. So John Walton demonstrates by examining other ancient Near Eastern accounts that the worldview of the time included a functional ontology, and he focuses very much on the Hebrew word bara, which is translated as create, a word that's only ever used with God as the subject or the implied subject. So God's the only one who baras or creates in that way in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Barah has a variety of objects in scripture, such as the cosmos, people in general, or specific groups of people. And Walton maintains that the list of objects for this verb, quote, are not easily identified in material terms, and that materials are never mentioned. So that when it's used, he argues, and there's a debate about this, obviously, um, that it's all about the relationships that are established more than the material construction. Again, I've talked about this in previous episodes, so go back and listen if you will, but uh, one of the key expressions that relates to the use of bara is tohu wabohu, which is typically translated as formless and empty or formless and void, and that's in Genesis 1-2. Now, these words are found together uh, in two texts, Isaiah 34-11 and Jeremiah 4-23. Bohu is never found on its own. Now, this word tohu is used in a variety of ways, none of which means formless in a material sense, So, for example, in Deuteronomy 32, tohu means waste or wilderness, a place that has no agricultural value. In Psalm 107, it's a wilderness or trackless waste, where corrupt princes are cursed to wander. In Jeremiah, the land is tohu because a disaster has overtaken it and it's been laid waste. And in Isaiah 41, idols idols are wind and confusion, or tohu. So to summarise then, Genesis 1-2 refers to a lack of order on which order is imposed in a functional and not simply material sense. So God comes along and takes uh, an agriculturally unstructured situation and structures it. And this makes sense. There's an ancient Near Eastern people, an agrarian society. How would you understand the way in which the world came into being? Well, it's for the purpose of us being able to feed ourselves. That's not all in the text, as I've argued elsewhere, but that's one angle we need to focus on. And the imposition of this um, ordering occurs over six days, so this is a carefully constructed account to provide a rationale for the Sabbath. Um, And over the first three days, there's an ordering of the major functions. So on day one, you get light and dark are separated and named day and night, and that gives you the rhythm for the six days, of course. So that's the origins of time. On day two, there's the separation of waters above, which sometimes fall from the sky like rain, and waters below, 
which comes from springs and so on. And this separation occurs by means of what's called the rakia, variously translated as vault, expanse or firmament, which could mean solid sky, but John Walton understands it as the space between the earth and the surface holding back the waters. And so this represents the, the ordering of space. And on the third day, food is created, or the possibility of agriculture, by separating the waters into one place and the dry ground in another where vegetation can grow. And then verses 4 through 6 give you that um, the creation of um, the functionaries in these three spheres. So we can turn then, once we understand that there's this functional ordering present in Genesis 1, we can compare that to what happens in the flood and think more theologically deeply about what that means and what it might mean for sea level rise. And we'll do that in the second half of the program. Well, welcome back. In the first half of the program, we were talking about this idea that the creation account, the first creation account, is represents a functional ontology. So what's being created? Functions and relationships. And in particular, there's this ordering that in the ancient Near Eastern mind meant that people could go about their daily business of feeding themselves, of being fruitful and multiplying, uh, and... Indeed, the whole of creation, being fruitful and multiplying and being able to feed itself, but particularly around this idea of agriculture in the story, not the only angle of Genesis 1. And so you get the separating of the waters above from the waters below on day 2, and the waters being separated into one location on day 3. So you get this, um, the tohu wabohu, the implied pre-existent material, this uh, watery chaos of the deep. And that word in the Hebrew is tehom, which many argue is related to the Akkadian word taimat. And in the Babylonian creation story, Enuma Elish, taimat is the personification of salt water. She is a sea monster. And Marduk creates the world out of taimat's body parts. So the Enuma Elish, unlike Genesis 1, is a violent account, an account of um, femicide. So Genesis 1 then is a, a demythologized account where the divinity time at becomes Tehom the deep. And, and yet there's still this ordering of chaos in the background because on day 5 God creates the great sea monsters, the Tenonim, and in the Enuma Elish, um, Tiamat has 11 children. And Marduk, in fact, doesn't slaughter these children but uh, chains them up and from time to time makes use of them. Now, here's the key thing, is that Genesis 1 represents, if you like, a non-violent conquering or controlling of chaos, although chaos sits in the background ready to be unleashed for divine purposes or unleashed by human sinfulness. And you can see that more clearly in other places. So the Psalms retain a much clearer understanding of this cosmic battle, this chaos camp, as it's called, 
between God and a dragon of chaos, Leviathan or Rahab. So Psalm 74, for example, uh, verses 14 and 16 and 17, saying that day and night belongs to God and that he smashed the heads, plural, of Leviathan for recalling the forming of night and day on the first day of creation. And that psalm also speaks of the boundaries of the earth and the seasons echoing day three. So there's some resonances between Psalm 74 and the first creation story in Genesis 1. So, but it's it's very much muted in, in Genesis 1, but it's still there in the background. And, and this becomes important a bit later on. So... What are the implications then for considering the flood account? Remember, this is the problem for some Christians in wanting to deny sea level rise as a part of climate change. If the first three days of creation represent the ordering of creation and giving it function for it to, quote, exist in this functional sense, then the flood undoes this as an act of uncreation and a return to disorder. And these forces of chaos are released ultimately by God, but because of human sin. In Genesis 6.11, we read that the earth was corrupt and filled with violence. And it's interesting, there's not a clear connection between that and the quote-unquote fall of Genesis 3. This violence appears and grows over time and um, makes the earth uh, impure. Uh, And so as a result of this violence, the great deep bursts open and the windows of heaven open, undoing the ordering of day two. The waters do not subside until the divine Ruach, that's the breath of God, blows over it. And that echoes, of course, that divine spirit or breath uh, that hovers over creation, like a mother hen in Genesis 1-2. And there's also an allusion to this in Psalm 104 as well. So the very same spirit who brought order to the waters in Genesis 1 brings order once more after the flood. So you can't read the flood account without the first creation account and vice versa. So what then does it mean in Genesis 8, 21 and 22 that God's promise will not destroy, uh, is to destroy, not to destroy all living creatures and seasons will continue? Does that deny the possibility of climate change and sea level rise? Well, we need to understand that this imagery is found in other places in the Hebrew Bible. So, for example, Job... In his suffering, he wishes that the whole of creation would be undone. He just doesn't want to die. He wants everything to go with him. For there to be darkness instead of light. And that's um, you find that in Job 3. And he seeks those who can rouse Leviathan to bring this chaos about. So I guess it sort of sounds like he's looking for a magician or somebody to turn around and undo creation for him. Likewise, although the dragon itself is not in sight in Jeremiah 4, the poem of verses 23 to 26 describes the Babylonian assault on Jerusalem as creation in reverse. Listen to this language. The earth returning to wild wilderness and waste, tohu wabohu. No light in the sky, that's day one of creation reversed. Mountains quaking, that is the earth's foundation shaking. No people, no humanity, that's day six reversed. Birds fleeing, that's day five reversed. The orchard made a desert, that's day three reversed, and cities in ruin, which is the reverse of Genesis 4.17, where cities are built. So Jeremiah sees the attack on Jerusalem as literally an undoing of creation, using the same kind of, if you will, apocalyptic language, the undoing of the good order in Genesis 1, which you find in the flood account as well. 
Now, a similar story is found in Isaiah uh, 24, where the earth dries and withers. That is, it's useful for ag- useless for agriculture. Because, like Genesis 6.11, the earth is polluted by human sin and violence. And in this case, the pollution is due to covenant violation. The curse found in Isaiah 24 verse 6 is that the inhabitants of the earth dwindle, which again is an undoing of the blessing of Genesis 1.28, to be fruitful and multiply. And finally, in case we miss the theme of uncreation, verse 18 of Isaiah 24 tells us that the windows of the rakia, that's the firmament, are opened and the foundations of the earth shaken. So hence, acts of divine judgment throughout the Hebrew Bible are envisioned using a similar vocabulary as Noah's flood, that of uncreation, reducing order to disorder and chaos. The link between human sin and a return uh, of the return of order back into chaos suggests that global sea level rise due to climate change can be thought of in similar terms. And so I'll explore this idea uh, below. So we've seen uh, to this point that the burning of fossil fuels produces heat-trapping gases, raises global temperatures and raises sea level rise. We've also seen that Noah's flood can be understood as an act of uncreation, the reversal of Genesis 1. The forces of chaos, albeit depersonalised in Hebrew thought, are released by human sin. In Genesis 6, human sin is the unfolding violence following on from the fratricide of Genesis 4, which is Cain killing Abel. The language of chaos and uncreation continues through the prophets so that covenant violation could lead to cursing described in a similar manner to the flood. Now, in, the, in Oceania or the Pacific, um, people, as we've noted, have, have theological issues. So, apologies if I mispronounced it. Tafui Lusama, the General Secretary of Tuvalu's National Church, when I wrote this paper, states that, quote, We plant and depend on God to provide fruits. We go out fishing with faith that God will provide enough daily. The failure of these seem to indicate to the people that God's providence has failed them. Which is terrible because this is all a result of, of Western sin. As Michael Northcote observes, Judgment on the sins of the rich is indiscriminate and falls disproportionately on the poor which you find in Jeremiah 2.34. Now, Northcote sees a link directly between greed, idolatry, empire, and ecological collapse in the Hebrew Bible. So, for example, in Jeremiah 5, there's a connection between a lack of justice towards the poor and the pursuit of individual wealth, and that's linked with a turning away of the seasonal rains. So, again, you get echoes of the promise of Genesis 8, but in the negative the seasons can still be disrupted in judgment, even then, even after the flood. So here Northcote sees, quote, the divine attributes set into the character and structure of creation. End quote. So he means that the pursuit of wealth, encouraged by setting aside of Yahweh for foreign uh, deities, and Yahweh remembers the one who sets the boundary for the sea for foreign gods, uh, sorry, for boundary of the sea, so set aside Yahweh for foreign gods, can be directly linked to ecological disruption. And so there's this internal logic he talks about, which is saying, you abandon your deities, uh, you, you God, embrace foreign deities, you engage in empire building, which means having a standing army, needing um, a reserve of crops, means farming again and again and again without giving the, um, the land rest, this Blacing uh, people and building bigger farms, and ultimately the land reaches its ecological limit. So it's not quite like that Gary Larson cartoon 
I don't know if you've seen the one where God's got his finger on the smite button so that a piano might fall on some hapless victim. It isn't always directly that, but the fact that there are the consequences, limits are laid in creation by God. And when we transcend those or try to transcend those, as we've done in the Anthropocene, then we push the planet beyond its limits. So we must recognize that natural disasters have always occurred and that God has retained chaos, controlling it rather than destroying it entirely. God made a covenant with Leviathan, suggesting that chaos is part of the created order imposed by God, having a role to play. That's Job 41, that whole argument of, to, to Job of, I'm God and you're not. <laughs> Science is telling us that there is no order without chaos, that chaos is in fact, can in fact be creative uh, of new order. And so like Job, we must ultimately be silent before God on this mystery. However, natural disasters are now more frequent and made more intense due to climate change. And this is a favourite quote of mine by climatologist Kevin Trenberth. Quote, The answer to the oft-asked question of whether an event is caused by climate change is that it is the wrong question. All weather events are affected by climate change because the environment in which they occur is warmer and moister than it used to be. So... Uh, we need to grab hold of the idea that's that's captured uh, in a statement by Oceania Churches, the Otin Ta'ai Declaration, uh, which acknowledges that that sea level rise is not an abrogation of the promises of Genesis 8, nor an act of God in the sense of divine judgment on Oceania peoples, but, quote, a result of human economic and consumer activities that pollute the atmosphere and lead to climate change. Most of these polluting emissions come from highly industrialised countries. So their suffering is our fault, is what it's saying. Uh, this declaration is thus, uh, quote, uh, a call, quote, um, on our sisters and brothers in Christ throughout the world to act in solidarity with us to reduce the causes of human-induced climate change. We must issue this call, particularly to churches in the highly industrialised nations whose societies are historically responsible for the majority of polluting emissions. We further urge these countries to take responsibility for the ecological damage that they have caused by paying for the costs of adaptation to the impacts that can be anticipated. So it's a call for churches in the West to own the guilt and the blame, our economic prosperity, uh, has causing great damage to our brothers and sisters in Christ in, in Oceania. We have the historic debt. We've been burning more fossil fuels and for longer. And not only do we need to stop that and transition to renewables and also to forms of uh, carbon drawdown, but to pay the cost of adaptation for those who are suffering from, if you will, our sins. We have a moral obligation. While the sea will not eat all of the land, as in Noah's flood, Yet chaos has been released and threatens to engulf all of humanity, but first it's striking at the hearts of those in the Pacific, or Oceania. We are committed to sea level rise that will affect the earth for millennia, and threatens to displace millions. Now in response, the church must lead the way in navigating the complex issues of human migration, creation care, resource management, and sustainable development, whatever you might mean by that phrase. Ultimately, the church's mission is to preach repentance, which underlines all of these issues. It is also to courageously preach a message of hope that ultimately chaos will not prevail. Isaiah 45:18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, 
he established it. He did not create it a chaos. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. And so the proclamation of this message must be tied up in this idea of repentance. It must be tied up in the church leading the charge. Too often we've been at the rear of the parade, the rear of the protest. Now it's time, uh, particularly as we slowly come out of this uh, period of pandemic, as hopefully globally we will see these vaccines roll out, that you know it's, it's a hiatus in a sense because there will be more pandemics. But there is this rolling pandemic of climate change that will not go away. And government inaction will not suffice. Uh, individual indifference will not suffice. And so if you carry the, the name of brother or sister, you need to consider very, very carefully not just your own personal actions, which uh, express your love for your neighbour and for God, but are also in one sense a drop in the bucket, but how we might be as a body politic that is the church and how we might speak to the society in which we live. Well, I hope you find that paper alluming and you can always get in touch with me for a copy of it, uh, should you wish. Uh, thanks once more for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.